I was listening to a couple of things this week, podcasts, stuff like that, and um, some of them were coming from a sociological or psychological perspective. And one of the things I heard someone say is that one of the most difficult human emotions for us to experience is joy. And that, I kind of stopped for a second and thought, oh, that's interesting. That was the point they were making is that maybe a lot of us don't think of that, but one of the most difficult human emotions that we experience is joy. And uh, think about it for a second, and maybe you have had this kind of experience where you maybe were in a context where joy made a lot of sense, but it was difficult for you to experience the joy, to enjoy the joy. So uh, maybe this has happened to you. This has happened to me before. You have vacation. You go somewhere that's beautiful. You're out in the forest or by the lake or on a beach somewhere. It's time to relax. Uh, You saved up to go wherever you go. You got the time off of work. You stepped out of your everyday responsibilities. You went and you get there. And those first couple of days, you feel anxiety. You're worried. You start to think about the work that's not done or that's waiting for you when you get home. Um, You start to think about things that maybe you left undone uh, back at home and, and maybe even it's relationships that were strained that in these moments where all of a sudden you've got lots of time to think or to ponder, Uh, And it should be beautiful and wonderful and just joyful. All of a sudden, you've got some of those things going on in your mind and your heart where you don't feel it. For a lot of us, if you're parents, you've experienced this because your kids bring you the most joy, but they're also the the thing or the people that you worry the most about. And so you've got beautiful, wonderful human beings. They look like us and so many great things. But also, then sometimes I lay them down at night and I think of what could happen to them? And what if this? And what if that? And what if the other thing? You know, some of you, tonight you're going to watch the Super Bowl, and it should be a joyful, beautiful thing, but then you're going to be worried that your team, none of the wide receivers can catch a pass like they couldn't all season, and that's going to steal the joy of the game, and I can say that because I have no joy. My team lost so long ago. It doesn't matter. They're nowhere close to the Super Bowl. I stress-free tonight for me, just get to watch the game, but it's possible that even, you know, you're watching your team, you get so into it, but you're worried, what if they lose? What if they don't come out? And instead of really enjoying it, maybe it'll be a stressful experience. And so a lot of us, we've, we, this has been something that we've gone through, that joy isn't always an easy thing because of our experiences, maybe because of losses that we've had, maybe because of times that we know that when things seem good, then we're looking for what could go wrong. Actually, one of the reasons why why in these podcasts I was listening to, they say that joy is so hard to experience sometimes is because there's a vulnerability in joy. So when things are going good, oh, just enjoy this. It almost seems too good to be true. And so there's this vulnerability to go, I now have something I could lose. I could lose whatever it is that I feel like is making me happy or that I'm enjoying right now. Uh, it, could, it could fall apart. It could break. It could go away. And I don't want to lose that. And so what we do in order to kind of cover up for that vulnerability is we start to look at how do I cut off those things that could happen to me. And that's the worry and the anxiety that comes into our minds and our hearts. Well, what if I lose this? And then we, so now we're going through mentally rehearsing, how do I sort of safeguard my life? What if something bad happens? What would I do? And, but, and now we kind of get in this cycle of worry or anxiety or stress, even though things are going well, or we should experience joy because we start to say, what if, what if, what if? It's almost like this moment is sort of too good to be true. And so the joy gets stolen out of whatever it is that we're trying to enjoy. Today, I want to tell you something right here as we start that is too good to be true. So much so that so often for us who are, those of us who are religious people, those of us who show up to church or even some other religious tradition, are so often, we'll 
be told this is true and you should enjoy it and it should bring you great joy, but it's almost so hard for us to live in the vulnerability of that truth that we need to build other structures into our lives to try and curb that vulnerability. What if, I, what if that's not true? What if I can't have that? What if, and it actually threatens to steal our joy. Here's that truth that I hope today as we work through this passage in Colossians, um, I hope maybe it's a reminder for you. Maybe there's some, some new things, but I hope more than that, this isn't just an intellectual exercise, but this would be a time where God takes this truth that is so, so good and would maybe bring it further than just a mental ascent and come down into our hearts such that you would experience great joy. And this is the truth. You are complete through your union with Christ. In other words, you have everything you need in Christ. We're talking in this, we started last week talking about the book of Colossians and talking about the idea of perfection and On the one hand, we hear in Scripture sometimes those words to be perfect and the standard to be perfect and our experience is that we're not perfect. And so last week we talked about maturing and what it looks like. Uh, That word uh, that we sometimes translate perfect maybe is a better way to think of it is to be mature, to go through the process of becoming mature in Christ. And today, this is the truth that you have for that everything that you need is in Christ and nothing else. It's true. Today, you can wake up to the reality that everything that you need to be complete in God, in your identity, in who you are, right now today, you can wake up to the fact that it is yours in Christ, in a union with Christ. And that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And it's kind of complicated, so I'm going to explain what it means to be in Christ, and we're going to go through that. And what we're going to do, actually, in Colossians chapter 2 is work through three don'ts, three ways that we go the other way, and maybe because this feels too good to be true or too vulnerable, that we try and look to other things in order to be complete and have everything that we need, and we're going to try and avoid those. And then we'll come to a principle at the end of how hopefully we can enjoy being full in Christ which will launch us into our third week. and we come to the third chapter, we're going to get real practical about what that looks like in the habits and everyday uh, ways that we live our lives. So Colossians chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 8. We're going to do three don'ts and then really quickly three do's this morning. Number one, don't fall for, these are the tricks, these are the traps. And number one is don't fall for empty religion. Everything that you need to be complete, you have in Christ. Do not fall for empty religion. Verse 8 in Colossians 2 says, Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from spiritual powers of this world, rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Verse 9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of God uh, dwelt in a human body. Um, So in Christ, this is a very, very important phrase. In fact, Paul, in his different letters in the New Testament, uses this short phrase, in Christ, over a hundred times. It's maybe his 
favorite thing to say, so important for what he believes the spiritual life is all about, is that we are in Christ. This is the reality we wake up to. It's the reality that we are offered to receive and then to live in, and it is transformative when we understand that everything that we need is in Christ. Why? Because in Christ, all the fullness of God is in a human body, or that phrase human body um, could be translated um, simply as, as solid reality, that it's contrasted with this empty religion, but now in Christ lives all the fullness of God in solid reality. So last week we talked about the Christ. We talked about how Paul uses this term for the Christ uh, to refer to the image and the mystery and... Um, the wisdom of God that has been operating all the way, going all the way back to creation, that is in all, that is above all, that is before all, and that all in all things holds everything together. It's the way that God has created the world to work is in Christ. And we see all of that image and likeness and mystery and wisdom of God filling up Jesus. And so we see that substantial reality. See, that's kind of an abstract concept, the wisdom of God. What, what in the world does that mean? Well, then we look in Jesus in the incarnation, we see the Christ, the mystery uh, and image and wisdom of God fully in Jesus. In Christ, all the fullness of God is in a human body. And now he turns it around and goes, so you also are complete through your union with Christ. Now I'm reading from a translation called the New Living Translation, and it calls it a union, which is important. I'll talk about that in a second. But that phrase, your union with Christ in verse 10, is actually the same phrase in verse 9, in Christ. In Christ, the fullness of God is in a human body. So you also are complete in Christ, who is the head over uh, every ruler and authority. So Paul says, with that reality, hard reality, the wisdom of God seen in Jesus fully, that you can now be in, don't be taken by false or empty religion. So we start with, it says, don't let anyone capture you. So think of that. Don't let anybody take you as a prisoner, hold you back, steal your freedom, not allow you to live the life that you're supposed to live. That's what empty religion does, is we think there's some truth there. We think that it's good and life-giving, but actually you're going to be a captive if you get deceived by it. It's going to hold you back. You're not going to be able to live your full life. Your full life is going to be lived in Christ. So don't let yourself be taken. Now he says the flip side is, what I've talked about is, everything that you need, you can be complete. You've got all the resources you need are in Christ or in your union with Christ. What does that mean? Think about a union for a second. Uh, think about, I was trying to think of what are, what are analogies for the union in Christ that Paul is talking about. This is actually really hard for us to understand if you're a modern, postmodern Westerner because we are so incredibly individualistic in our thinking. Almost everything, all the ways that we think are permeated with this idea that um, my identity is me as an individual, my choices, my freedom, um, all those kinds of things. And that's how we see the world. That's the glasses that we have on that we see everything else because that's what's been pumped into us for um, our entire lives. But most of the history of the world, most of the cultures in the history of the world were much more communal and they understood actually uh, corporate identity. And corporate sounds very business-like, but what that means is just a communal or an identity that we're still individuals, but that we can all share. 
So what would some of those be? So uh, let's say at, at work, you have a union job. Now put aside a second what you think about unions from an economical perspective. That's not my point here. My point would be, let's say you're part of a union. You show up to work, you're part of this union, maybe you're doing a, a trade or you're a teacher, or whatever it is, and you've got this union, and uh, you start working, and then they come to you, and they say, we're going to pay you, and they say something that's below market value that is, is less than what you're supposed to be paid then you would say, you can't do that, I'm part of the union. This has already been negotiated. This is our pay scale, these are the benefits that we get, these are the rights that we have as workers, and uh, it's not just me that gets this, the union gets it. And so collectively we're part of a union. We have collectively bargained agreements, um, and so we've got, we've got rights, and we've got salaries, and we've got benefits that are all part of that, and I don't just fight for my own as an individual salary or package or whatever it is, I'm part of the union. And so together, collectively, we have an identity. We're all individuals, still, but when it comes to certain, in certain respects, we are part of a union. That's one way of looking at that corporate kind of identity. Another way would be, um, think of uh, maybe one of the only places we really still uh, treat relationships like a union is in marriage. Marriage is a union. So when you get married to someone, hopefully, uh, your me turns into a we. So there's all these ways where now you're intricately now connected with someone else. Uh, in churches we talk about, in the scriptures we read that two become one. That now we are again still individuals, but we have a corporate identity. We have an identity together. We're a family. And so what happens to you happens to me. Um, yes, we're individuals, but nothing that's significant that happens to you doesn't happen to me. We are close. We have an intimacy. We are connected in all sorts of ways. We have bonds physically and emotionally, financially, socially, spiritually, family-wise. We have kids together. When she gives birth to a kid, we have kids. I found that out the hard way. <laughs> both of us have these kids? Yeah, we do. Because we're, we're in a union. So now these things apply to both of us together. So when Paul talks about being in Christ, he talks about not ceasing to be an individual, but now entering into a group corporate union that is defined by Christ. So listen to what he says. Verse 11 says, When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. So now we get an understanding when he talks about the empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. The background of this is there was people coming in, and the Colossians uh, had, had accepted Jesus and become followers of Jesus. Then there were a bunch of people, remember Jesus was Jewish, Paul was Jewish, and all of this is being birthed out of Jewish context. There are people coming and saying, well, that's great, you want to follow Jesus and be a Christian. Now you also need to convert to Judaism. So you're not fully complete yet, even though you're following Jesus. You need to now come and become Jewish, go through all of our rituals, and then you need to follow the law, and then this is going to help you be complete. Now, Paul and Jesus, neither of them renounced Judaism. They didn't say, wow, this is all, we're not going to be Jewish anymore. But they saw their fulfillment of their faith in Christ, in Jesus. And so now they're coming and they're going to say, here are these people that aren't Jewish, but they're following Jesus. And, and people are coming, yeah, but now you've got to become like us and be Jewish and uh, obey our laws and, and all these kinds of things. And Paul's going, no, 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 like we're Jewish and that's fine. We have to stop being Jewish. But they're supposed to come to Christ just like we are. 
They're not supposed to come to be like us in order to have to then be like Christ. So that's why the circumcision was for the men, this uh, initial right to become Jewish. So verse 12, for you were, this is what happens when you're in Christ, when you receive Christ. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive in Christ, for he forgave all sins. So you circle that one. What happened in all of this? He forgave your sins. How do we deal with guilt? We're going to talk a minute about shame. Um, guilt, guilt can be a good thing. Guilt is one of the mechanisms that we have for us internally to say, I've done something wrong. I've hurt somebody. There was an action, a behavior, a thought I shouldn't have. It was harmful to me, to somebody else. It was something that, you know, was not healthy in my relationship to God, all those kind of things. And guilt is just one of the things that goes, oh, you shouldn't have done that. And hopefully, if it's in a healthy way, helps root you to a healthy path. How do I change that? How do I apologize for that? How do I make restitution for that? How do I move on in a more healthy way? So God's mechanism for that is by forgiving all sins through Christ. And when he was baptized, you were baptized, you died with him, and you were raised with him. Verse 14, he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. This is amazing because now Paul is going to say, this is what it looks like to be in Christ, to be in the union, that what Christ has already done now, because your part, your identity is now soaked up in the union, I'm part of this corporate identity, that what's true of him is true for you. So he forgave our sins, and it says he canceled the written code. The written code is now canceled. What's the written code? Probably he's talking about the law of, for the Jews and the things that they had added to the law about how to follow the law. And for Paul, we see this all the time. He says, here's the problem with the law. If all you have is the law then all you're going to get is what's wrong with you, is why you're guilty. You're going to find out that I can't always follow the law. Even if I try really hard, there's going to be things I can't do, I messed up on, I didn't, I didn't make it. And so it becomes, if you read it a certain way, very accusatory. It tells you why you're not worthy. It tells you why you're not good enough. It reminds you of your mistakes. And so it's never enough to give you everything that you need. Paul, remember, is trying to tell us everything that you need is in Christ. So it can't be in the law. So what Christ has actually done is he took that, uh, that accusatory written code that you knew you could never live up to, and he nailed it to the cross. And when he did that, he stripped or disarmed the authorities. He took away the power of the authorities that we read about here a couple uh, verses earlier, and said they are no longer powerful, the spiritual rulers and authority are no longer powerful to assert that judgment on you as a person. The written code is canceled and the authorities are stripped and disarmed. What authorities is he talking about? Probably two things, there's some argument on this, but two things are in view. At this time, the Romans and the Jewish religious system were regarded as the greatest government and the highest religion that the world had ever known, okay? So this was part of how people thought the Romans were the superpower of the world, greatest government going, and you had uh, the system of Judaism in the temple, which people thought this is the greatest religion we could have ever think of. And this is what Paul says. 
when they nailed Jesus to the cross, when they crucified Jesus, what they thought they were doing, the religious system and the political system, the greatest that people thought this is the greatest that we have going in terms of politics, government, and religion. They nailed Jesus to the cross and they thought they were shaming him. They thought that they were ending him. They thought that they were disarming him, that your movement, that anybody's following you is now over because look at you. Here you are, Jesus, naked, exposed, not powerful. You are done. And Paul says, he takes all that same language and he says, what this governmental system did in its brokenness and what this broken religious system did to Jesus, what they thought they were doing to him, he has done to them. He has shamed them. He's disarmed them. He's taken away their power. He took the accusations against him. You know, they posted on the cross that he's the king of the Jews and they mocked him. Well, he took, Paul's saying, metaphorically, he took the written code that says you're guilty and you should be ashamed of yourself and you're not powerful and this is over. And he took that written code and he nailed that to the cross. And he exposed, he stripped the, the authorities of all their power. And by exposing them, here's what he said. Your broken systems are stone cold killers. This is where it leads. Here's Jesus, stripped naked, a man who taught people how to love each other, who taught people how to live in relationship to God, who taught people how to forgive and show grace and welcome to people. And do you know what the broken systems did? Is they killed him. And they thought they won. Paul is saying they didn't win. They got exposed. You follow these broken systems, what does it lead to? It leads to crucifixion. leads to a death. And Jesus exposed them by dying and saying, look where your system leads. Not to life, not to love. It leads to death. Now you are in Christ. And what they did to Christ, therefore, you can be part of that identity. Paul uses the language. When, he did, when, when you were baptized, when you accepted Christ, when you entered into being in that union, that you died with him and then were raised with him. Well, what do you mean? It's a little bit like double jeopardy. So double jeopardy from a legal sense is that if you're tried for a crime and you go through a trial, you can't be tried again. They can't just keep saying, well, no, no, we're guilty again, guilty again, guilty again. Uh, New sentence, harsher sentence. No, 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 it's over. You get tried once and whatever happens to you in the trial, as long as it's fair and whatever, then that's the outcome. Well, Paul's going, when this happened to Jesus, guess what? You're in Christ. He got tried. He got executed. You are part of that corporate identity. These systems can't try you again and execute you again. You're dead. It's over. And here's the good news. Christ rose again, and he triumphed over them. This is language that if you uh, were an army uh, general or whatever, and you went out and you won a, a battle then they didn't have social media, they didn't have news outlets to just tell everybody, hey, we won. They would actually uh, have like a triumphal parade around your, your town or the city or whatever it would be and proclaim victory. Well, Jesus has proclaimed victory over these authorities, over all those that would continually tell you that you're guilty and even more that you should be ashamed. See, guilt, like I said, guilt tells you you've done something wrong. There's a healthy version of that. Shame tells you that you are something wrong. 
goes down to your identity. So not just that you've done something wrong, but you are something wrong. You didn't just do something bad, you are something bad. So now you don't just say, oh, I messed up, I did this. You say, oh, I'm stupid, I'm ugly, I'm a failure, I'm a pervert, I'm a fill-in-the-blank, whatever it might be. Now it's sunk down to your identity. Paul is going, here's our identity. It's in Christ. Corporate identity. And Christ has taken all those accusations. He's gone through the trial. They executed them. But then what he did was instead of taking the shame on us and saying, yeah, we're all terrible people, he put the shame on these systems that said, your systems are stone-cold killers. They don't bring life. They bring death. You want proof? It's Jesus on the cross. Now you can be in Christ. You can deal with that. That's not who I am. That's not where I live. And I have everything I need in Christ because Christ then triumphed over all of that. Walked around saying, death is defeated. Guilt is overcome. Shame doesn't have to be your reality anymore. And that's the difference between being in Christ and empty religion. You know, sometimes with empty religion, we actually want it. Do you know how ironic that is? Because we feel shame and we feel guilt. We don't know what to do with it. And so we say, give me something hard to do because then I can feel like, well, now I've overcome it and maybe I am a better person. And so we kind of put the onus on us. Paul goes, it's not going to work. But you can be in Christ. You can live in Christ. And you're dead to all that. And the written code is nailed to the cross. That trial's over. And the authorities are stripped and disarmed. And you can see them for what they are. Those accusations... Shame, man, that just brings death. But Jesus has gone into death and come back to life. And if you're in Christ, what's happened to him has happened to you. That's the substance. That's why you have everything that you need in Christ. Because everything to conquer all the things you've ever done wrong, all of your shame, and even death itself. Empty religion just gets you stuck. Captive. Don't, don't get taken captive to that. They put you in jail. You're not going to be able to move forward. You can be in Christ who gives you life. Go a different way. Where does it come from? It comes from forgiveness. It comes from God saying, but this is my system. My system is the grace-filled system of forgiveness. Okay, number two. Verse 16 says, don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality to come and Christ himself is that reality. So a couple of lists here. So don't let anyone condemn you means in this context. Don't let anyone exclude you. We'll see that really clearly. Don't let somebody keep you on the outside by passing this judgment on you saying you don't belong here. And again, what's in view here is uh, these Jewish laws. So people coming and saying, oh, it's great. You come to Jesus, but you're not following these things. So it says what you eat or drink. So that's kosher rules. And then certain holidays or holy days, new moon, ceremony, Sabbath. So this is a list that would be then representative of all the holy days that Jewish people celebrate. These two categories, the holidays and the kosher eating, are two ways that very significant ways for the Jewish people that they would have said, this is what makes us different. This is what makes Jewish people different from non-Jewish people. What makes us separate? We are our own people. How do we know? We don't eat like everybody else. That was very symbolic for them. Because there's certain things that are unclean. They also believe there were certain people that weren't unclean. So we don't want to be unclean. We want to be clean. And we want to be all kind of together, homogenous in our things. We celebrate this calendar, this schedule, keeps us on track. And this is who we are. Paul says, not, hey, this is a terrible idea. But he says, problem is, these were shadows. 
Christ is the reality. Could you imagine how silly it is to confuse a shadow with something, the reality of that shadow, whatever it is that's casting the shadow? What does this mean? What's an example? Um, not long ago, our son was playing basketball. And um, I've noticed my son's not old enough to be in super serious sports. Like he's still young and it's fun and they're practicing and learning games and playing games. I'm competitive. I was always competitive as a kid. It wasn't just, oh, let's go and have a good time. I want to win. And I've noticed in myself already, my kid's playing these games. It's just not a huge deal. And I tell him, just go have fun and work hard. But I want him to win, too. <laughs> There's a little part of me. I know i got to be a little bit conscious of that because the older it gets and the more serious it gets, I'm going to be that parent. I know I'm going to be that parent. And I don't want to be. So I'm going to pray for me. I'm going to work on that. Um, live in the Holy Spirit and all the rest of it. But that's part of inside. But I'm taking him to these games, and I do just want him to have some fun. But one day we're there. It's the first week of the, the new season. They're playing basketball. And all the kids go out there, and they start playing. And there's one kid on his team. And um, this, this is always a little heartbreaking as a parent. But he gets there, and you can tell he's, he's overwhelmed by it. He's nervous about it. He doesn't want to play. His parents bring him to the floor and try and get him out there. But he doesn't want to go. And so he's kind of he's, he's tearing up. And I don't want to go. Don't make me do this. And probably if you're a parent, maybe you've had those moments. You just, but I want you to go and have fun, and how do I convince you? And I don't want to give up, but I also don't want to push you too hard. And so you can tell his parents are trying to figure out, how do we navigate this, and how do I get him to play? How do we get him comfortable? And, you know, it's, it's, it's not a comfortable moment. And then my son comes over. They're playing the game. He comes out of the game, goes off to the side, and he says, hey, you want to play catch? And he bounces the ball to him, and the kid just sheepishly catches it and then passes it back and then gets a little better. And then all of a sudden they're playing catch, and this kid's getting a little bit more comfortable and a little bit more comfortable. And I don't know how much time goes by maybe six, seven, eight minutes, something, they're playing catch and, you know, talking a little bit. And the kid's just getting more and more comfortable until uh, he goes, okay, let's go play. And he gets in there and his parents are just, oh, it's so good. And I'm sitting there like tearing up. <laughs> and after the game, uh, I go to Joe and I, I, you know, go down to him and he'd had a good game after that. And they played, I think they won. And, um, and it's like six-year-old basketball, but they won. <laughs> But I get down on my knee, I say, Joe, do you know what I was so proud of you for today? I said, what? I said, when you went aside and you just saw the kid who, who wasn't fitting in and you went and helped him be comfortable, I said, that's the, that's the absolute best thing you did today. And he's like, there's pizza in the other room. Can I go? Yeah, 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 that's fine. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine. But here's the thing. Okokay, so there's this competitive thing in me. I'm joking a bit, a bit about it. But that's the real game. The real game isn't basketball. Really what I want for my son, for my kids, is, is not to win every basketball game. It's to learn the things you can learn in, in uh, being part of a team and working hard and practicing and building relationships and ultimately being a good human being, which means sometimes you go, it's not about this game. I'm going to go over and be here for this person. That's what it's actually all about. That's why I want my kid to play sports and enjoy it. And Paul's saying the same thing. You've got all these things and they had a point but they were the shadow, not the substance. Sometimes you got to change the game that you're playing. The point is not to be different, to be exclusive, but to be different, to be inclusive. The point was never do these things to be different so that forever you can be an elite class and group of people. The point was be different so that you can go out and include the people nobody else is including. That's what Jesus was so good at. And one of the reasons why in his religious tradition at that time, they killed him for it. 
because they weren't comfortable with that. No, we want to be elite because it actually makes us feel good that we're the ones that now are this elite group that fit in. And he goes, the point was never that you fit in so that you could create an exclusive group. The point was you could be different for the real reason of including people who are different and who don't fit in and who need the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. So Jesus did. Jesus was different. He didn't just go, I'll just be like everybody else. That's what we teach our teenagers. We don't want you to just go with the flow and go with the crowd because that can be dangerous. So we want you to be different and we want you to have good influences and good friends. But you're not supposed to stay there forever. You're supposed to learn the next lesson eventually that when you become mature enough and strong enough, you're going to have this powerful way of then going to people and including them, not excluding them because, wow, we're elite. Look, we made it. We're the ones that fit in. So number two, don't fall for tribalism. The point for us is not just to create a group of people who are different and therefore can exclude and judge everybody else but to be a group of people who are called to be different in Christ to then share that grace and forgiveness with people who have been pushed out of their circles. Nobody includes them. So verse 18, don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on highest self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. You've died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. What's true for him can now be true for you. So why do you keep on following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Number three, don't fall for just willpower, willpower, willpower. Because either you'll be kind of good at the things that you say we need to don't do. Here's all the rules. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Oh, I did really good. And if you do really good, you're going to fall into the first two categories of empty religion and tribalism. And here Paul says, then you're going to get proud. And do you know what's happened? You haven't, there's no power there to change you from the inside out. You've just puffed yourself up to look good. Followed your own rules. It's not transformative. But everything that you need is in Christ. Complete in Christ. Your corporate identity, where you've been crucified, can't be tried again. And you've been given new life, not stuck in empty religion that only holds you back. Three lies we tend to believe really quickly. I have to earn approval. I have to fit in. I have to try harder. Stone cold killers. So what? What are the do's? Now we go back to verse 6, to the section before what we've just read. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the faith, in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. In part three of this series, we're going to talk about all these things and what it looks like very practically. So come back for that. But really quickly, here's what we do. Grow roots. Be nourished by grace. Everything that you have is in Christ. Forgiveness of sins, the conquering of death, the nailing of the written law on the cross. You're baptized into Christ, raised up in Christ, and you have everything that you need. Let that nourish you. Let it enter your mind and marinate there and fall into your spirit. You live on this. That's your food. That's what you eat. 
Not the lies of, I got to earn approval and fit in and try harder. Number two, build your identity on God's love. Who am I? It's a lot of options, especially in a very individualistic world. Who am I? What do I build on? What's my core identity that can't change? Build your identity on God's love. Build your identity on, on Christ, the one who's conquered everything, who is above all and before all, and in whom all things hold together, the wisdom of God. Build on that. We'll talk about that in chapter three. Make decisions based on that. Build your behaviors based on that. And then finally, uh, overflow with gratitude. The studies on gratitude, by the way, interesting. Um, I started by talking about how difficult joy is to experience. Do you know what they found is the one factor that really helped people lean into joy if it's hard for you? This is good. If at the beginning you thought, yeah, that's me, it's hard to really enjoy even the things I'm supposed to, it's gratitude. So all these studies from uh, University of South Carolina, I think, or California, um, they asked participants to write sentences each week, a bunch of sentences each week, and they had three different categories. One that wrote things that they were thankful for, one that wrote um, neutral things, just write 10 sentences, doesn't matter if it's good or bad, and one, uh, things that maybe they were upset about. They said that those that wrote about the thankfulness things in their lives. After 10 weeks of doing this, they were more optimistic, felt better about their lives. They exercised more, uh, less doctor visits. Um, they had uh, a diminished focus on aggravation. It, it started to change their lives, even physically changed their lives. There was another uh, study at the University of Pennsylvania with hundreds of people, and uh, they had them, uh, their assignment was to write uh, and personally deliver a letter to people that had not been thanked in their life properly. So is there somebody that did something for you and you never really had an opportunity to thank? And if so, write a letter and go take it to them. Um, and they said that the impact on those people and their, just their, how they self-reported before and after, their levels of happiness, joy, contentment in their life went up drastically. And they had con control groups that did other things, didn't change it. This is the point. Our word for gratitude comes from a Latin word, gratia, which means grace. When you live in grace, it becomes all-encompassing. When you receive grace, you can live in grace and you can live out grace. Paul here, I love it. Paul is a master of mixing metaphors. Does it all the time. He's fine with it. So he's got roots, like a tree or a plant that get fed. And then he's got uh, build, like almost a house. Jesus talked about this too. Build a house, build a foundation, build an identity. And then um, this phrase, people have noticed, um, you'd use it if you were like pouring wine into a glass and it overflowed. Like this celebratory, we have an abundance, we have so much. And that's where he says, he says, let your life overflow with gratitude. Or in other words, let grace overwhelm and spill out of your life. That's how you experience the joy of being in Christ. So Heavenly Father, we pray that these would be things that today would be not just abstract ideas, but very practically you speaking love into our lives. We pray that uh, where there's guilt and shame that you'd remind us today in a very substantial way uh, that those things have been taken care of. What's true for Christ in that sense is true for us when we're in Christ, when we receive grace. And I pray that that kind of grace would uh, infiltrate our lives so deeply and fill us up to the brim and then overflow and overwhelm our lives and our community in Jesus' name.